Welcome to Negotiating Brexit, the Views from the Member States podcast. This is a series for anyone interested in Brexit and the UK's future relations with its European neighbours. We look at viewpoints that are not always well known in the UK. I'm Hussein Kassim, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and a Changing Europe. And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at UEA. Today we are looking at Denmark and Brexit. We're delighted to welcome our guests Rebecca Adler-Nissen and Sarah Harumann. Rebecca Adler-Nissen is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. She works on international relations theory, diplomacy, sovereignty and European integration. A prize-winning scholar, she worked previously in the Danish Foreign Ministry, where she headed the European Policy Section, the Confederation of Danish Industry and the Danish Institute for International Studies. She currently leads major funded projects on diplomacy and on digital disinformation. Rebecca has written widely on the UK and the EU and has been following Brexit closely. Sarah Herrmann is Associate Professor in European Politics at the LSE and Academic Director of the LSE School of Public Policy. Her research is on transparency and accountability in representative democracies, EU politics and governance and EU treaty reforms and enlargements. Sarah has previously held research and policy positions at the European Policy Center and the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels, as well as at the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. She has published extensively on European affairs, is co-founder and former director of Vote Watch Europe, and was an ESRC senior fellow in the UK in a changing Europe. She has also followed Brexit very closely. Well, thank you to Sarah and Rebecca. And I'm going to kick off with the first question. So the UK imagines that other countries have been as preoccupied by Brexit as we have. Has Brexit been an important issue in Denmark? I'd say definitely yes. Um, I do think we can count ourselves among the, the, the EU27 who, that are actually occupied with this question. I, I wouldn't say we're existentially occupied with it, <laughs> but but it has uh, taken quite a lot of uh, of, uh, of of space in the in the media and even among uh, people who are not usually interested in the EU. But that said, it's also been a very long process. All of this, of course. So there has been there was a lot of attention at the time of the referendum, and in fact, in the run up to the referendum, there was a lot of attention paid from from Danish parties and and the public. Um, to see if this was potentially something that Denmark should uh, mimic uh, in some shape or form. Uh, Denmark has had referendums itself, and so there was a lot of, of, uh, of attention regarding um, the Brexit referendum in the UK. But of course, that's already uh, more than three years now. And so in the meantime, while negotiations have been... Um, have developed. Um, I think that the public has sort of been in and out of of uh, of the focus uh, on on Brexit. And uh, at this point in time, where we are looking at the very end game um, to see what will come after the transition period ends, um, as of first of January, I think the Danes are. Um, in the public opinion and also in, in the political uh, sphere, uh, simply waiting to see uh, what this will all, all mean because uh, they have contemplated this issue for a very long time uh, and it's been, it's been a long process. 
Thank you very much to the both of you for a very brief but uh, compelling answer to the first question. Perhaps um, building on what you were saying, Sarah, and I'll cover that question number three first. So uh, when the UK referendum took place, some in the UK and elsewhere anticipated a domino effect across Europe. You mentioned that the question was uh, present in the public debate. So did this vote have any impact and how did it have an impact on party politics, political discourse and and public opinion in, in Denmark? Well, absolutely. The, the, the political parties, and, and we have a, a couple of Eurosceptic uh, uh, parties, um, immediately reached out. And um, I had the experience of some of them coming to London on a regular basis just after, in the aftermath of the referendum to see if, um, if there was any, um, anything to, for, for the Danish political system and the political parties to to consider for for Denmark and and also to really get a sense of what it was that the UK government and and the parliament as well would now want to see happen because that would have implications for politics in Denmark uh, as well as of course uh, Danish interests uh, in the uh, in in their relationship with the UK economic interests mm-hmm. um, but um, I think it was very uh, a very quick um period where where there were these big questions for whether there was where, whether this was something to be um to be copied in 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 Danish politics and then it became clear that actually things were not going in the direction that um any of the eurosceptic parties in Denmark would want to see either i'm sure rebecca can can uh, can add a lot to this as well but but um, I think that the way that things were handled in the UK very quickly had an impact on the more Eurosceptic sides of, um, of the arguments in Denmark. And they, they, they sort of withdrew and waited to see what would come out of, of negotiations with the UK. I might even go, go further. I, I very much agree with Sarah. It, it was a very interesting moment where everything seemed possible. So all of a sudden there was talk of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an out, you know, out referendum in Denmark as well. And the Danish People's Party openly said that this was a, a model they would copy. We should follow the, the Brits. And I think it's important that the historical context of Danish EU membership is, is really bound in with the history of, of UK membership because we entered the EU together. And it was only because the UK entered or uh, the, 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 the European market that we, uh, the Danes, also became members. So it's very, our sort of fate in the EU is, is in that sense, from the very beginning, linked to the UK. And, and uh, whether or not people are aware of this, it, it still sort of resonates. Uh, so so when, when the UK was, was sort of leaving, this immediately raised the question for everyone. And so everyone had to make a stance. But I think the interesting effect of this has been because of what Sarah was, was, was saying, the way it's been perceived as a very chaotic and uh, very un, unmanaged process seen from the, from the Danish side, uh, it's actually become more of a, a threat. And so we've seen a really interesting process where the Danish People's Party has actually said, well, let's wait and see. So that's sort of the official uh, policy point, the Danish People's Party being the most sort of vocal or at least dominant Eurosceptic a party in Denmark, very much sort of setting the the, the scene for for the skeptical voices uh, in Denmark, and, and and have become a bit more, if not positive, then at least more neutral on this. And and it seems to be this 
a very interesting phenomenon we see across Europe. So there's kind of this rally around the flag, and we know what we have since, and let's see what what happens with the with with the Brits. Um, so so it has in, in that sense. <laughs> Made, made the Danish People's Party much less vocal and also actually having a difficulty finding a position that's sort of logically coherent. In, in some ways, you can actually say that the Brits and the Brexit process has made the case for membership in Denmark as well as in other EU countries. But really, it has been become very clear in the Danish case, um, even though we have opt-outs in the same way as, as the UK has had opt-outs uh, uh, in its uh, during its membership, but the, the Danish case for being within the EU, with everything going on in the world at the moment, and seeing how the UK is, um, as a consequence of Brexit, and it's the way it's negotiated Brexit, becoming um, sidelined in, in, in many important areas. That's, that's really the view from, from, from Copenhagen, I would say. Very interesting that, uh, listening to the both of your perspectives on, on that shift in particular on, on, for the Danish People's Party. I mean, as EU member states, Denmark and the UK often found themselves on the same side. And Sarah, you mentioned the opt-outs. Uh, they are both economically liberal Atlanticists uh, outside the Eurozone and uh, opposed to a federal Europe, so to say. So how is the UK's departure viewed in Copenhagen? I think it's seen with, it is seen with a lot of regret. Uh, it really um, is felt uh, in many different ways, but in particular, with um, the UK having been a very vocal voice um, in policymaking at the EU level. It's been one of the leaders setting the scene or, or taking initiatives in a number of very important areas. For example, with the single market, uh, with enlargement and, and in foreign policy. And Denmark has always been closely aligned with uh, British interests, uh, apart from a few details here and there, but but very much um, voted together with the UK, which is something I've looked at in my research. Um, and we now see that Denmark and uh, other Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, and and that group of countries, which one could say have that, that sort of uh, liberal, uh, progressive uh, uh, policy stand, they, they have now lost uh, the biggest uh, voice uh, at the table. Um, so, uh, a, a former minister even said to me, it was the big brother that left the group. And now they have had to find new strategies, new ways of, of uh, uh, asserting influence and, and, uh, and finding their ways in, in, in a quite a, a different way. Uh, EU uh, setting within the institutions as well as in the broader political landscape. Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's very much a sense of, of loss of Big Brother and, and also a loss of, of feeling at home <laughs> because part of the reason why the Danes could live with this very constraining and also uh, controversial construction, which is the EU, is that we were we were together with the with the UK and the UK would protect us and our interests. That was the sense, uh, sometimes uh, false <laughs> sense of security, but it was there. Um, it also meant, and, and that's some my research that looked at, at at how how that has affected Danish diplomacy in Brussels, and it has meant that we've maybe relaxed a bit because we knew that, that the UK would take the big battles. For instance, on questions of uh, the eurozone 
and what should be dealt with only by Eurozone ministers and what should be dealt with with the the whole of the EU. Those big sort of principal fights have been taken by London. And in that sense, I think there is really a sense of loss. Also, it has to be said that <laughs> France doesn't want to be alone with Germany and Germany doesn't want to be alone with, with France. Uh, and, and so we find ourselves in a, you know, and, and the rest of the EU doesn't want to be alone with, with France and Germany. So there was this very neat balance um, with the, the, the three big, UK, France and Germany. And so the overall balance in the EU has been lost. It also means, and I think uh, you'll find that, especially in the, in sort of among bureaucrats, this is a real worrisome situation that France and Germany now can, if they can find each other in the Council of Ministers, it's quite easy for them to, to create a blocking minority, for instance, or, or just to, to find uh, just enough allies to, to make a proposal go through. It doesn't mean they will necessarily do it, but it means that that, that bilateral relationship sort of becomes defining for better and worse. And, and in, in the Danish case, there's worries about the effects long term and short term of this in terms of Danish interests across the board. Well, well, very interesting. I mean, turning to um, turning to Danish interest, I just wondered where, um, which areas were most likely to be affected in Denmark by Brexit? Uh, where's the impact most likely to be felt? You know, it's 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 very very clear. For even, <laughs> it's agriculture. So it's it's our exports, um, and you know, overall, it's not huge. It's nine percent of Danish exports uh, goes to the UK, but in some sectors, it's really almost half half of the or more of the exports that, that go to the UK and the good old bacon, uh, it's our uh, it's our diary, it's, it, it, it's all that, the, the very huge agriculture exports. And, and for a company like Ala, they're facing, um, which is one of our big producers, it, it's, it's a catastrophe. Brexit is really a catastrophe. But it also, you know, will be felt in the service industry, of course, um, and, and across others, but, but agriculture's, and, and we may talk about fisheries later, which is another huge factor. But um, but it, it will it will be Denmark will be head sort of asymmetrical across the economy. But um, we will have some big losers. But if I can add to that, just very briefly, I think that at the same time as that is certainly the case, as Rebecca though points out, it's it's a rather small fraction of the economy overall. So what has been really important for all EU governments, but certainly now in, in the case of the Danish government, has been to manage expectations and prepare those sectors. And I believe that certainly uh, with fisheries, which is now, of course, a huge battleground, um, uh, that has been, uh, there has been a lot of political efforts in making sure that whatever comes out of the next uh, maybe 24 hours, um, um, uh, the, this, the issue of fisheries or agriculture is still not um, politically such a, a huge issue that it would question EU membership or um, the relationship with the UK going forward because the expectation is, regardless of the outcome, which is either a no deal scenario or a very thin deal, really. Mm -hmm. There has to be efforts, maybe bilaterally between Denmark and the UK, and that has already been prepared. It's ready to be rolled out, whatever scenario we are looking at, 
for as quickly as possible to start some sort of of um, trade arrangements um, uh, going forward. And of course, um, uh, this is all happening within an EU framework. The Danish government has to comply and and make sure that things work uh, as an EU member state. And then there's at no point a question mark about that or about the Danish um, EU membership as such as a consequence of Brexit and our and the way that the the economy will be affected here. It's 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 a much bigger issue. EU membership is a much bigger issue and it's a political issue as much as it's an economic one. Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, we'll return to this question, the question of the bilateral relationship a bit later. But I wondered if the um, if the economic hit that's going to be taken by Denmark has um, shaped its approach to the negotiations at all. I would say yes, Sarah. Sarah will probably uh, also so so give some some details on this. But the short answer is is yes, uh, to such a degree that I would say um, Denmark is one of the hardliners, exactly because of this. And the, the, it's a hardliner, not in the political sense of, of France. It's a different kind of hardliner. It's a hardliner in terms of rules. So um, the level playing field, which we've been talking so much about, is really sort of tattooed onto the chest of every single minister in a Danish government. It's such an important issue. And it, it's, it goes beyond bureaucracy because for, for the, in, the, in a small state, open economy, a Danish perspective, the level playing field argument. So the idea that all rules should be the same for everyone and that competition should be fair is really what, what is the raison d'etre for Danish EU membership. So the moment you tinker with the level playing field, the moment it becomes easier for some states uh, than others, including via sort of uh, state aid or other things uh, that are sort of not allowed currently, then uh, that sort of reason to be member um, and to sell your, your products no longer really holds. So it's really, really a crucial thing across, even among the unions, uh, you will find this argument. So it's quite sort of central to the Danish approach and explains why we are not uh, maybe the as soft as one would assume, given our very, very close relationship with the UK. I, I, I very much agree with what Rebecca says, and I think that also there's been uh, some some uh, some consequences of the negotiation process. So even before the referendum, we had Danish ministers flying to London every single week. Uh, there was a lot of outreach. There was a lot of of, of uh, diplomacy in place. Uh, and as soon as the referendum outcome became clear, that continued because the Danish politicians wanted to make sure that both interests were heard in London from the Danish side, but also, again, to see what kind of collaboration, what kind of support um, Denmark could give, perhaps from within the EU, to find a, 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 a good arrangement for the UK, because it, Denmark has been so dependent on the UK voice. Uh, within, but also now with outside of of the EU, and um, and I'm sorry to say that uh, I know that many ministers were uh, stood up and and not uh, not sort of um, given the courtesy of actually having uh, any conversations and and proper discussions about uh, next steps. And that was very disappointing to, to, to the Danish government as well as to uh, party groups in, in parliament. Um, 
uh, of course, one can say in hindsight, well, it's perhaps very much down to the fact that the UK government didn't know what it wanted at the time and it were, was trying to to formulate um, sort of its its uh, uh, its standpoint uh, in in more detail. And domestic politics were, of course, took up all all uh, of the attention. But nevertheless, um, if I can be a bit direct, I think it was a it was a, a mistake um, from very early on that the UK government did not engage in uh, a more diplomatic and collaborative uh, um, dialogue with key allies on the EU side to ensure this process being uh, landing somewhere uh, that could actually lead to to a. a a more comprehensive compromise than what we are looking at uh, today. Um, of course, the the point, the standpoint that Theresa May took uh, was also a very hard Brexit uh, uh, position. Um, but the fact that there was no um, no real efforts in the in diplomacy with its key allies in in Europe, I think that that has really bruised. Uh, uh, a number of countries, in, in, including the relationships uh, with Denmark. Well, that's, really, that's, that's very interesting to hear because what mm-hmm. one read sort of consistently of waves of, of, of attempted bilateralism on the part of the UK. Um, so I wondered where how that fitted into the picture that you were that you were describing. Yes, but I don't think that that happened on in any consistent or at senior level of of uh, of, uh, of government. Uh, and uh, the the meetings that did uh, take place, um, I'm sorry to say, but they were not because the UK didn't have a a, a sort of a, a proposal which uh, was they were able to to um, to put on the table and have substantive discussions around. So I, I think that the, the efforts that were made were not um, it was not with a comprehensive strategy from the UK government. Of course, the fact that on the EU side, um, the Commission was very quick to make a move and um, put forward a collective um, team as well as a starting point for negotiations with, you know, uh, in the very beginning already stressing that the four freedoms in the EU, so the um, free movement of people, of goods, of services, etc. That they that that was basically the baseline for anything that were now to to be part of the negotiations, um, and um, and that was in the interest of all EU member states, including a country like Denmark. So Denmark uh, did consider to what degree there needed to be a, a specific interest from from the Danish government that had to be part of the negotiation mandate from the very beginning. But it became very clear that the processes on the EU side that were set up really, really um, accommodated Danish interest very well. There was a very transparent and good dialogue between um, representatives, government representatives and the EU representatives. So um, that's why the EU side has also been very successful during these negotiations in, in keeping it all together uh, because they were able to, to put in place, first of all, a very clear 
foundation for the negotiations that it was in the interest of all EU member states, as Rebecca said just before, Denmark needs to have that respect for the rules and having the jurisdiction clear um, so that there's no question about the level playing field and access uh, to the single market. Um, and so I think all of this has really therefore been a process that suited the Danish interest and the Danish government very well. But but I think Sarah's point about um, about this disappointment with the lack of engagement and sort of lack of reaching out of of, of, of seeking help in a sense um, is is really important and it's not usually put actually out there, but it 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 was a missed opportunity. Of course, I would say even if you don't know what you want, you can still um, sort of uh, cater for your. Or, or keep on smoothing relationships. That's a good old diplomatic um, good thing to do because then you you never know when you need your friends. But I I also very much agree with Sarah. It, I actually had expected not such a uni, sort of unison or, or coherent EU approach. I would I would have expected that over the years it would at least sort of show some weaknesses or, but we haven't seen that and and that is exactly due also. It's due to Barnier himself, uh, the way he's done this and, and his cabinet or the, the, the people surrounding him, uh, but also to the actual process of having these negotiation mandates, which are very interesting because they bind everyone <laughs> in a productive way. And it's it's sort of seen from a game theoretical point. It, it, it's really a nice illustration of what you can do if you're extremely transparent and then you have these negotiation mandates that are published and Barnier will even go sort of on Twitter with these sort of slides showing, you know, this is our, our red lines, this is what we can do. And it sort of binds everyone. Um, so even if you might have second thoughts afterwards, it's like, well, it's too late, right? So it's it's a very uh, effective way of negotiating. On but, but on the other hand, Re- Rebecca, they, they've done that in a way where there was always room for negotiation around, you know, what? how do we interpret these red lines? How far can we go? Uh, what kind of arrangements can we, can we um, put in place sort of around the edges, which is different to the kind of public commitments that the UK government made where they actually cornered themselves on a number of occasions. Uh, so for an example, the whole thing of, that was back to Cameron's government of, of the uh, immigration quotas, right? Uh, well, they quickly became really difficult to 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 manage, and um, and and for any subsequent government to take a stand on immigration, it always had to be a, a tougher one than what had been proposed previously, and that that sort of public commitment has been difficult to then live up to. Uh, because also it became clear that, of course, immigration is many things and, uh, and the UK economy depends on it and it's different to um, and confused with uh, the refugee and asylum um, question, etc., etc. So I think that uh, I very much agree with you that the transparency has been very important with the, for the EU mandate uh, but also the dialogue around those those um, uh, mandates uh, have continued, and there has been movement on the EU side on some of on some of the positions. While I think that the the UK 
position has not been one on principles for taking things forward. It has been on specific policy commitments that have then been difficult to, to uphold. Um, so, for example, now we see the problem, uh, don't we, with, you know, for example, the fish, uh, because uh, how do you get around that uh, since there's been such a strong public commitment from the government for, for, for a while? Uh, very, 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 very interesting points about, uh, about unity and how it was uh, created and sustained. I just wondered if it was ever tested so far as, as Denmark was concerned. I mean, because a lot of um, commentators in the, in the um, UK have been surprised by um, the, how the Irish border has been treated by the EU27 at, at the time and then the EU. Um, and, where, and why that became something that all of the um, EU member states could stand behind. It's it's that's a that's a really good question. I I am also um, surprised by the by the seriousness with which this was taken across the member state. Part of it has to do with the way the EU was involved in the Good Friday Agreement from the very beginning. Um, I think so that it's kind of bound up with EU law, <laughs> and as such, uh, the moment you say you know tinkering with EU law, then you know alarm starts to to sound. But pedagogically, and here I think it's really a question of pedagogy, um, Bani and his team has very sort of eloquently explained the problem um, to all EU member states, all their representations. So no one was you know, any longer sort of, everybody understood the problems that would arise um, if there was, again, a hard border. And that's sort of that discourse Plus, you know, there is this effect of Ireland being in, in, the, in the EU. It really makes a difference. I think Ireland has discovered, or Dublin at least, the, the benefit of still being a member because who will, who will the EU then listen to? I mean, Denmark will listen to what Dublin says it needs. And that's a sort of almost intuitive reaction you have. Also as a small member state, I would say, there's some kind of identification with Ireland uh, in this situation. Um, but I don't know if Sarah agrees. I think that's exactly the, the point, the, the last one you make here, Rebecca, because I'm not surprised at all, because I think this is about territory, right? It's it's about borders, and it's it's that is something that the EU, in all cases, with, when you look at territorial questions, it really engages with it, and it takes a very uh, principled stance. Um, and I think that, of course, there are questions when we talk about Ukraine, there are quest other questions that arise if we talk about um, uh, Spain or independence questions. But the issue of territory is something that is always taken extremely uh, serious by, by the EU. The other issue is that, I mean, the border with, uh, in, in Ireland is, of course, that's access to the single market. So this is this is a, a, a very delicate question, and there's already been for some years concerns about the access, um, for example, of counterfeit uh, products coming in through um, the UK and through uh, Northern Ireland, in Ireland and further into Europe, and um, and if there's no policing of that border, uh, of a border, I should say, then all of the EU will have a problem, and so the the it's it's uh, it's not a surprise that there is real political attention at the highest level from all EU member states. But I think the the interest from Denmark 
is so partly that issue of, of access to the single market and ensuring again uh, fair fair rules and proper policing of, of, of our of our EU borders, but also the fact that as a small member state, you're always looking to to show that solidarity matters and that territory is not something that we take lightly. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, in, in Scandinavia in general, um, the focus is slightly different, but, you know, we, we on a fairly regular basis, we find uh, Russian submarines in our waters or uh, other uh, sort of visitors. Um, and uh, again, we need, we need to, of course, uh, also know that we, we are a club that sticks together and, you know, border issues is taken seriously. But, yeah, very, very, very interesting indeed. Um, I mean, one of, one of the other um, issues that the people ask actually on both sides of the channel is, could this have been done any differently? And one, um, well, one criticism that's made from, um, from the UK is that the EU has taken an overly bureaucratic approach to the negotiations, that, um, that it hasn't been flexible, that it hasn't in particular um, sought to pursue an agreement that would um, be in the mutual interests of both sides. It's been dogmatic about this. I just wondered what you thought about that. I would say that's, uh, that's not at least how it's seen here. Uh, on the contrary, actually, um, the Danish government um, and sort of across the, the Danish system, I would say companies, etc., all they really want uh, is to accommodate the UK as much as possible. And, and that has been sort of the approach, um, yes, principled on, on, on some ideas that we talked about the level playing field, but apart from that, any creative idea that might land on the, on the, on the table is, is seen as you know, a good thing. And so the political declaration, when that, when that was finally, 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 finally there, was sort of, um, you know, great, we have, now we know what they want. Now we have a, 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 a something we can work with and let's see how we can accommodate the British interests uh, in this. And so it was seen as a, a very nice sort of landing zone. This is where we can find each other. There are some things in the political declaration that are a bit strange or might need sort of <laughs> to be specified later on, but at least there was something there seen from a, a Danish side. and and. And the moment that that no longer becomes the foundation for negotiations, which happened in a really um, sort of casual way, almost, because this was seen, and at least from an EU Danish side, as sort of there are two elements to the Brexit thing. There's the divorce agreement, and then there's a political de declaration. And so the political declaration was about the future in broad terms, but still it's quite detailed, actually. And when that's sort of disregarded by a new prime minister, we have nothing. And so that is, that is, that is, I think that was actually a bit of a shock to everyone that there was nothing in the political declaration that one could take sort of for granted as we were going into the second phase of the negotiations. And that sense of, I think, almost um, loss of trust, because this was seen as part and parcel of the whole, you know, package. And so even, even not to sort of say, yes, we're actually moving away from our what we sort of agreed on together, um, sort of left, I think, also the Danish government a bit sort of lost. 
Yeah, and I think that that has continued, in fact, um, because the the tabling and the proposal by by Boris Johnson with the Internal Market Bill has really again um, meant that there is not no trust on the EU side, and and Denmark certainly has uh, had a reaction to that as well. So I think it's extremely important what happens now, of course, with a deal or no deal. But it's also very important to see. Um, what moves are, are done in, in domestic legislation uh, in the UK, because, of course, anything that is now proposed, potentially, if we have no deal and uh, with an internal market bill discussion in Parliament again, really, that really means it's the end of uh, any constructive discussions uh, for, for what comes after 1st of January. So, um, so th- I, I think that Rebecca is absolutely right that uh, there's there's been a number of, of, of it's been a sequence of, of events that that really has led us to where we are the, and the political declaration was a was a very important framework for for the EU side and certainly for for Danish uh, approach to uh, how to think longer term and and uh, putting in place. Uh, um, new ways of, of continuing our trade relationship, uh, of course, as well as the political um, relationship. Uh, but taking that out was was a real uh, was a, a dra- drastic step. And now the, the the Boris Johnson's internal market bill uh, has been further uh, damaging, uh, as seen from the Danish side. I should say though, uh, just to sort of um, nuance the picture a bit. Exactly on this point, there has been an ongoing discussion, especially from from the Danish People's Party, to say, let's give them something more. So there is this voice uh, uh, also in in Danish politics uh, across the board. I would also say among the uh, sort of the liberal, the the sort of more conservative voices that we haven't been accommodating enough. So it is there. It's a minority position, but it is certainly there. It's often sort of more... uh, voiced sort of in the abstract, but never really con- concretized. So once someone says, well, what should we have done instead? It becomes very vague, but it, it is a voice. And there is a sense in which could we on our side have done more to meet the UK, um, but it never, you find it on the right, you find it on the left, but it never really sort of becomes a stable position. But it does suggest that, of course, this is a, this is not an easy thing, and and um, and how would you know the, the the what I think we cannot underestimate how much the Danes would love the UK to have stayed. There was definitely a, a sort of a sense, if only they changed their mind, that would be really nice. Then that sort of dream <laughs> evaded, and then and then and then we're left with sort of. Can, how could we make them at least stay c- closer than 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 where they're heading now? So that sense is all all over the place. But um, but at the same time, Rebecca, I think that also really indicates that things could become a bit of a slippery slope then, because well, if they were met on, for example, state aid rules or uh, other really fundamental questions uh, in the EU, why shouldn't Denmark then follow suit? And, and that's, of course, the pressure that governments are under all around. I mean, Macron is certainly looking at uh, at the final outcome of, of the negotiations now, very much with a view to can he fight off pressures 
from uh, uh, Front National and, and others to, to also question their arrangement with the EU, maybe opting out of Schengen or other big questions for them. Uh, but uh, but it, it is just not something that is uh, uh, constructive for governments to really contemplate in any wider detail. I think that, you know, we started off, if we go back in time to, you know, the 24th of, of June uh, in 2016, the day after the referendum, everyone was hoping for a soft Brexit. Mm -hmm. And a model of sorts, right? That we would have a close arrangement. I mean, and, the, and, think and I think it was an offer. Yes, and to think that we many thought it would end on a Norwegian model seems hilarious today, right? But that was that was actually the majority view at that point, at least here. You're you're actually right, Sarah, and 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 exactly that argument has also silenced those that sort of voices now and then. Can we do more? Oh well, I mean, the moment you sort of uh, let go of the rules of the club, then the club falls apart, and that sort of says, oh, and then people actually struggle and show that you're right. So that seems to be sort of where it lands always. Uh, as much as we would like to stretch, there's simply limits to how much stretching you can do without collapsing as a club. Yeah, so there's kind of you know heart searching, but ultimately there isn't a there isn't a hard position that you can reconcile these positions on. I just wanted to ask a follow up um, to, um, to to something I think Re Rebecca said, which was um, about the perception of the UK, and I wondered how that's changed maybe since Bloomberg, but certainly since 2016 and and thereafter. Um, could you say something about that? I think we're still in the process of digesting the effects of this. Uh, so to some extent, the, the old image of, of Britain still is quite dominant. Um, and this is also why it's, in that sense, been an existential issue for, the, for Denmark, because we see each other as so close. And the moment that UK moves in a very different direction and sees itself as this you know, old empire that can do go it alone, Denmark starts to ask itself, what, 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 what are we then? <laughs> We're actually not that sort of in the same, the same kind of state. We are a small open economy in a, in a club that protects us. And that's a somewhat different view because we've seen ourselves in the Scandinavian Nordic club together with the UK, which was this liberal sort of cluster. But that cluster sort of at least partly broke. So we're looking for new friends in the South and in the East. And that will eventually, but we're not yet there yet, also change, I think, Danish self-perceptions. As to the UK, I mean, there's a sense in which, and maybe this is, again, a bit Danish directness, but it, a sense in this is a state that hasn't understood, or a country that hasn't understood that it's not as big as it used to be, that the world is a dangerous place. And, um, you know, it's, it lives in a dream world where it can do things. But the moment, you know, you do a, a trade agreement with India, India is going to ask for things like visa uh, accession. So, so, so it's a hard world out there. And, uh, you know, travel well, but, you know, take care out there because it's, it's definitely not easy. That's the sense, I think, of a country that's sort of lost, uh, lost trace of where it is and which century it lives in. I also think that what will be really defining um, in the next two years, let's say, is of course the, any external events. So whatever we now see happen on the borders of the EU, um, you know, refugee 
situation. Um, governments in Turkey, in Russia, in uh, Middle East questions. Um, there's a lot of really big political looming questions in addition to what we are already dealing with internally in terms of COVID, um, climate change, uh, etc. And um, the UK uh, will now have to define its role in all of those uh, international issues differently to what it's been able to do for the past 30 years. Um, and I think that, that that will also have an effect, you know, with the new US administration, uh, which is likely to be very aligned with many European um, foreign policy uh, priorities. Uh, where is it we will see the UK placed here? Uh, and of course, Denmark is a very tiny country, but it's a very active actor in the global stage. It's uh, been part of several military interventions around the world uh, alongside uh, US and, um, and, and UK uh, operations. And I think it's, it's, uh, um, it's both the internal EU as well as the global politics that will, that will be of importance here. Uh, and that we will certainly see a lot of volatility and, and uh, movement in, 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 in that respect as well. Yes, and I think that, that, that if, if I may just add something that I think is quite crucial for the future relationship between Denmark and the UK, but also the sort of broader picture, as much as, you know, there's a sense of loss and, uh, and also fear of what, what, what will happen to the UK, there's also a sense that we still have NATO. So NATO becomes an extremely, and has been and will remain, because Denmark has a defense opt-out from the EU. We are in many ways uh, very close to the UK on the military side and has been together sort of voicing this idea that, yes, we can talk about strategic autonomy in the EU, but really, you know, the, the decisions are to be made in NATO and the transatlantic alliance is crucial. Now, the big sort of puzzle for, for Danish security and military uh, thinkers uh, and practitioners is, of course, how Brexit is going to affect this the NATO, but also the uh, very close military cooperation and security cooperation that we have with the UK. And my assumption is, as much as we talk about, you know, this, we're going different directions on, on the military security side, we'll still see a lot of cooperation, um, formally, informally, across the board, simply because we are dependent on the UK. Um, and we regard each other as allies. So as long as there's something called NATO, there is really uh, an important role for the UK to play and a very constructive one. And this may actually be the sort of limelight of all this, that um, NATO may play a sort of bridging role. You know, if, if things re-end with a no deal and it's, it's a, you know, the EU side is, is not where we have the most constructive dialogues, then hopefully, seeing from Danish perspective, NATO can be that arena with its limited political agenda because it's only a very small part of, of, of world politics that's discussed at NATO. But that's at least the hope from a Danish side. But I do also think that there is uh, already set out a, a, a sort of foundation for, for EU-UK uh, collaboration in security and foreign policy. It's just that, you know, the, 
the the basis for any relationship have to be um, found first, and then um, the mutual interest in security, uh, terrorism, etc., is 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 something that is a is a key priority. That was part of the political declaration, of course. So again, you know, that's missing uh, from from uh, the current talks. Um, but a lot of a lot of uh, details have already been discussed with regards to how that collaboration can uh, be reignited um, uh, later on. But it will take some time. Thank you, Sarah and Rebecca. Uh, a lot being discussed there on the perceptions of the UK and how they've changed. Also, the future bilateral relationship, the future. Uh, of the EU itself without the UK being there from a Danish perspective. Perhaps one last point uh, is taking it back to the very uh, immediate uh, uh, um, time frame. How ready is Denmark uh, for the end of this transition period, whether there is a deal, no deal, and so on? I think it's ready. <laughs> there's been a lot of preparation. I think in general, on the EU side, that you will see that there's been a lot of preparation. There's a, there's a recovery fund uh, there have been uh, direct uh, uh, preparations uh, on, in, you know, the specific industries that uh, depend on on the outcome. Uh, there's been preparations on borders, etc. Uh, the, the the big concern is really how prepared the the UK side is because um, trade is a two way. Uh, uh, relationship and uh, and we've seen with any of the testing that has happened in these past six months that you know they were they were not a success uh, in, in uh, sort of to make a general statement but um, there will be a hit um, both if there's a deal and if there's a no deal because the deal we're looking at right now as I said previously it's a it's a thin deal uh, so uh, while there will be some surprises along the way, and I think the public opinion will react um, on both sides. Uh, but uh, I think there has been there has been fairly extensive preparations, and and uh, in in Denmark, I I, I believe I, I from what I I've seen and heard uh, without knowing it in detail, but it has been you know a, a reassurance that. Uh, any of the uh, industries that will feel this the most, they have they 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 are prepared for it. They will still feel it, but but they know. Just to add on that, there's even a sort of a movement among the bigger companies in Denmark to make to make sort of Brexit a success story in a sense that they will be the ones that will be able to do all the paperwork. So you see shipping companies um, like DFDS and others sort of marketing them actively as you know having trouble you know how to deal with the getting your goods from from uh, i don't know from from madrid to dover we can handle it for you including everything uh, all the legal details all the paperwork that needs to be done and we take a fee of course so there's even a sense that you know um as good sort of you know, Denmark entered the EU because they wanted to make money, and it seems that we can even make money out of out of the bureaucracy of, of, of handling Brexit. At least for some of the bigger companies, that that has been an active calculation, um, just showing how sort of pragmatic things can also be. Rebecca, Sarah, that's been a fa fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks to our guests. 
Please join us for the next episode of Negotiating Brexit, Views from the Member States. <laughs>